Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and it's all about the rock today as we dive into a new documentary about a musician and an artist who has had a huge influence on my own career. One of my all-time favorites, right up there with the Beatles and the Stones. And if you've seen the new ink on my upper left arm, then you know what I'm talking about, the late, great David Bowie. There's a new documentary out about him called Loving the Alien. Trailer is already up on Vimeo. And the doc is coming on June 2nd. Just search Loving the Alien documentary and you'll find it. So today I've got the filmmaker and fellow Bowie fanatic Maurice Hovan on the show. He's going to talk about all things late career Bowie. Maurice hosts the Cat Named Mo show weeknights on 102.5 The Bone in Tampa. He spent the better part of six months producing and directing this documentary. It's all existing footage and includes some really rare and hard to find moments from David's later career, the post-less dance era. Uh, like the jam session with the Foo Fighters from his first 50th birthday concert at Madison Square Garden. Some of the funny bits he did with British comedian and actor Ricky Gervais. We talk about Bowie's last album, one of my all-time favorites, Black Star, and his last persona, the Blind Prophet, or Button Eye, who appears in the videos for Black Star and Lazarus. Bowie was so innovative and creative right up until his death. We really get into that, the constant reinvention, the music experimentation, and why he stopped touring in 2004. It's Maurice Hovan talking about loving the alien, all about David Bowie, the genius, right here on Talk is Jericho. So the uh, amazing world of social media and Twitter, <laughs> I met uh, Morris uh, Jovan. Jovan? We do, we yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maurice Javon, yeah. Maurice Javon, okay. That, that's good. <laughs> and I had no idea that you actually live in Tampa as well. Absolutely, yeah. And you are on air at? 102.5 The Bone. I'm part of that lineup, which has Mike Calta in the mornings, Roger and JP, Drew Garabo, and then my show, The Cat Name Mo Show, follows. Awesome. So I was looking at it, and somehow, I don't know if you contacted me, if I just happened to see that that Maurice had done uh, a documentary. I was just going to say, I can tell you exactly how tell it happened. Tell me. Yeah, someone had uh, retweeted that massive Bowie uh, tattoo that you have on your... <laughs> yeah, there it is. And <laughs> I had no idea you were a Bowie fan. And I reached out to you to come to the premiere of my Bowie documentary. Right. And you DM'd me and said, I'll do you one better. Let's talk on my podcast, which I was ecstatic about. Which is great because Bowie over time is, is I've always been a huge fan, but he's slowly becoming maybe my, my favorite artist of all time. And you got to keep in mind that I'm a huge Beatles fanatic and Stones fanatic. And, okay. you know, of course, Metallica and Maiden and all that sort of thing. But I've basically based my own career on the concept of what Bowie did with his career, which is constantly evolving, constantly updating who he was as a, as a singer, as a character, his style of music. Right. And right. so I really uh, have been having a great appreciation for Bowie over the last five or six years, especially for the last few records of his life, more specifically Black Star, which to me is, is it might be my favorite album of all time. And we'll get into that. I'll, I'll say one last statement, then I'll turn it over to you. And when I saw you're doing a Bowie documentary, which was great, I was like, oh my goodness, he's focusing on the, like you said, post Let's Dance stage of his career. 
which just I thought was such an interesting way to do it. Uh, well, uh, Lionheart, if I could call you that. <laughs> <laughs> That's Mr. Hart to you, please. <laughs> Mr. Hart. Let me say one thing and one thing first. I did not get any Fozzie merch, so what I did was I put on my Black Label Society <laughs> dicky, uh, hand given to me by one Mr. Zach Wild when I got to interview him up in Columbus, Ohio. Father Maurice. Uh, uh, yeah, and I know, and I know that uh, he played on a couple of tracks of uh, Fozzie's. He did. This is what I would say. It's very interesting that you talk about you modeling your career after uh you know bowie because you know wanting to do the due diligence and do the research obviously chris jericho i know you i know of mm -hmm. you i am aware of what you represent in wrestling you know maybe one of the greatest if not the greatest it's not for me to say thank but you. i'm not afraid to say it thank you then i started looking into all of the other things that you've done singing acting playing creating and what you have that separates you from a lot of other cats in the game is the fact that someone could technically refer to you as a renaissance man. And if you talk about renaissance men, Bowie was the prototypical renaissance man right. from being a Broadway actor to a screen actor to a, an artist, a multi-instrumentalist, a singer-songwriter. He was not comfortable staying in one space. That's kind of the appeal of him for me too, Chris, because uh, aside from radio, I did radio, I still do it, but I did radio and started in radio and stand up concurrently, decided that I wanted to write a novel. Filmmaking has always been my passion from a very early age, and I decided to pursue that as early as I could and as often as I could. So seeing someone like David Bowie, who was constantly evolving, but also constantly staying true to himself, which could absolutely be said about you. That was my guy. Plus, it's the, I'm not going to curse, it's the effing music. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. the music is brilliant. And you mentioned Black Star. How often does an artist get to write his own epitaph? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's ever happened in rock. I don't think there's ever been a rock artist that spans five decades of music and hits that six months before he dies, begins recording, perhaps, as you say, his best work. It's certainly his most complex work. Mm -hmm. And it releases the day after he dies. And he was at the precipice of 70. Who's doing that? Uh, you mentioned the Stones. I love the Stones. But, you know, they've been touring off of the hits yeah. for quite some time. And Bowie, he was just not satisfied doing that. No, and, and that's what I think is is so cool of the concept of this, and, and also too mentioning Blackstar in the fact that, like you mentioned, he 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 was doing this record while he knew he was dying, and creates another amazing character in you know the Button Eyed, yes. the Lost Prophet Button Eyed, <laughs> yeah. which is so creepy when you first see it. It's absolutely nuts. Also, too, the fact that he once again experiments like like it wasn't like Bowie, like, OK, I'm going to go down uh, with the nostalgia thing. He wanted to do a jazz influenced rock record. Absolutely. So instead of having his guys, the Carlos Alomars and the Earl Slicks, etc., play jazz, he hired jazz musicians to play rock and roll. Come in there. I mean, how brilliant is that? And it's, it's so it's so <laughs> simple. But it's also such a Bowie characteristic. And the fact that he made this while he was dying. And I don't even know if you've noticed this. I'm sure you have. The second song is called Tis a Pity She Was a Whore. It's a whore. Tis a Pity She How Was a Whore. How does it start? Yeah. <laughs> it starts with him breathing. 
Yes. yes he records yes. himself breathing as he's dying. And it's just like, it's so fucking genius. Now, is it his best work? It's hard to compete with, you know, the glory days of Ziggy and even the Less Dance record and, you know, the Berlin years, etc. But it's kind of like the new Metallica record. It's the best you could possibly ask for Bowie at 70 years old, still rewriting the rules of everything that he did. And then, of course, dying the day the record came out or the day after it came out or the day before. The day it came after, out. right. Day after, yeah, day after it came out. So we never got a chance to see any of these performances live other than the videos that he did. Right. And it's a shame because I would go see Bowie if he, you know, there was a time frame and you'll talk about this where he just refused to play any of his hits and just said, I'm going to start Tin Machine. If he did that with Blackstar, I would be there in the front row. 100%. And when you talk about Blackstar, Chris, and your knowledge of him, it really impresses me. You have to go back a couple of years to the next day where he, yeah. well, I think the next day really set the stage for Blackstar. Blackstar far more complex than the next day. But still in that same vein where he had jazz influences and, and a lot of experimental kind of melodies and pacing. I wanted to, I saw, have you seen Moon Age Daydream? I have. Thoughts? Okay, well, let, let me do you one better before, before I, I talk about Moon Age Daydream. Uh, okay. I find your movie, which it's called Loving the Alien. I'm Loving the Alien, and I'll say, yeah, Loving the Alien. It's a great companion piece to a riveting documentary called Bowie, The Last Five, five Years. Five Years, Have correct. Yeah. Yes. So it's the last five years of his life and talks about kind of the deterioration, all the things that led to him doing The Last Day, doing the Broadway musical, really becoming an artist, doing Black Star as he's dying, and also the Broadway play that he, that he wrote and, and directed while he was dying. So I think a lot of people don't understand just how great his work was in those later years right right so correct. when you when you get a chance to see that in it was called lazarus was the, was the lazarus was the there musical, you go lazarus correct which of course fits you see just like he and you mentioned the stones we love the stones as a matter of fact i heard the stones postponed their tour this summer because they want to finish the record and that's great put out a new record but nobody really had you know if you go out of those long time amazing artists from elton to the who to whatever mccartney they're putting out stuff but bowie's stuff was still vital and it was still great and i think people forget that or might not even know that absolutely because they just want to hear the 70s and 80s tunes and you're really missing out if you're a bowie fan not listening to the last you know a few years of his career absolutely and and i i would say the documentary spans a 25-year period, though there are gaps in between the records, starting with Tin Machine, which I believe was the album that got him into becoming David Boy. I think one of the taglines on the trailer is Aladdin saying, Ziggy Stardust, the Thin White Duke. These were all Bowie personas, the man that made the world dance. Afterwards, Bowie decided to become Bowie. And that was when he, those years, starting with Tin Machine, he stripped away personas. He stripped away artifice. He just stood on stage and became a modern rocker. And there's the album start from Tin Machine and they go through. I kind of bookend with Next Day and Black Star, but really then ends with reality. So in between there, you have Tin Machine, you have Outside, you have Earthling, Black Tie, White Noise, Heathen, and, and then Reality. And those seven records, mm. those seven records to me contain some of his most brilliant work. You said you don't know if Black Star could compete with the 70s icon heydays, Ziggy Stardust, the Diamond Dogs. 
I've always, I think it's weird. What's frustrating about David Bowie is he was such a genre hopper and not a genre hopper because he was dissatisfied with what he was doing, but because once he perfected something, he wanted to challenge himself. And he addresses that in the documentary himself. So you could find someone that loves Bowie, that is a huge Bowie fan. And then as you say, you start talking about his later works and they're like, he released an album after Let's Dance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and you're like, he, he released nine after yeah. Let's Dance. <laughs> but but they were not what you loved over here. Well, because we, we, we didn't hear them. It's, it's you know, and I, I'm obviously a gigantic music fan. It's like people who discount 80s Kiss, oh, 80s Rush. It's like, well, 80s Aerosmith, 80s ZZ Top. Well, you know, ZZ Top turned electronic or, or when Rush started getting keyboards, it's like Kiss was too poppy. Like if you don't listen to those, if you if you have a favorite band and you discount a whole section of their career just because it's not the original, then then you're not a real fan of the band. You know, people bag on, on Van Halen 3. Like I listened to that record. Is it my favorite? No, but if I love Eddie Van Halen, there is a reason why he deemed this good enough to release. So I'm going to check it out and listen to it. And and arguably, Gary Sharon may have been the best vocalist out of the three of them, <laughs> out of Hagar and Ross. Well, sure, it's just not the glory years that we grew up on, right? So that was my point. If you're talking about Bowie and you know you love Les yeah. Dance and you love Ziggy and you love Aladdin and all that sort of stuff, Thin White Duke, right? You might have grown out of the Bowie, but if you are a Bowie fan, he never stopped being Bowie, and he never. It's not like he just started releasing shitty albums or something because this stuff is great. So that's why I loved your interpretation of his career. Talking about Moon Age Daydream, I thought it was a little bit of a letdown for me, and I'll tell you the reason why. Ooh, I, I okay. really, really enjoyed the last five years. I was really into that. Now, I understand Moon Age. It went all around. It's very eclectic, and there's cartoons, and there's you know a lot of Bowie as an artist and all that sort of stuff. I just thought it was kind of all over the place, which I guess kind of mirrors Bowie's career, but Bowie's career never seemed all over the place to me. Now, what did you think of Moon Age Daydream? It's, it's so funny to say, okay, I had buyer's remorse with Moon Age Daydream. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Moon Age Daydream and I saw it with my 13-year-old boy. So that's a fantastic experience in and of itself. Gotcha. I loved it. I loved it. But almost immediately after walking out, I said, well, that wasn't enough. I mean, here we are talking about a documentary I'm doing on eight to nine albums in a certain era. None of the songs in my documentary, none of them appears in Moon Age Daydreams. It seems like he stopped at Let's Dance. He yeah. gave a yeah. cursory kind of mention to maybe some other. He just played snippets of music, but he never really talked about the artist that he became. I felt it was a little too expansive. Right. What it did was what it did brilliantly was it gave you the portrait of an artist that became a work of art. But now, if you didn't love Bowie and you went in there trying to understand Bowie, you were fucked. Mm. <laughs> you, you, were, you were going to go, okay, I see that he did a lot of stuff, but you know what else did he do? You can't stop at 80s Bowie in a documentary that's two and a half hours long and purport to give a comprehensive overview of the man's life. Right. But now, Bowie fans, we're all notoriously hard to satisfy. We all want something different, I guess. So I think Brett Morgan did a he did a fantastic job. But I'm like you. I felt wanting more. And I did love, I think, the best documentary that I've seen on him outside of mine. But I'm not saying that uh, <laughs> is, is the is the last five years. 
me ask you this before we get into loving the alien, Maurice, is, is you keep mentioning that uh, after Tin Machine, which for people that don't know, basically Bowie in 87 or so around yeah said i'm done i'm done being bowie no more stadium tours no more hits i'm not doing i'm not singing you know uh, <laughs> china uh, girl <laughs> yeah china girl or uh ground control to major yeah, tom yeah. ever again yeah. and he completely flipped the script and basically formed a hard rock band called tin machine which people i don't really know if they embrace it but it's actually really fucking great oh it's absolutely um, fantastic reeves gabrell on guitar he he was a very avant-garde guitarist, and I think he carried him through about four more records. Yeah. Of course, he had the Sales Brothers as well, who were Soupy Sales Sons. That seemed a little sketchy to me, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so classic Bowie, right? But my question is, you said that's when he became David Bowie. What do you mean by that? I mean, and I think that there's an interview where someone asked him about, you know, Ziggy Stardust and the costuming and everything. And he goes, oh, so you were playing a character. And he goes, exactly. Understand. And I'm not saying understand to you because you do. And I think a lot of people do. The music was authentic. The music was groundbreaking and it was revolutionary. Right. But I think what he was doing was so different that he hid himself behind, you know, makeup behind these incredibly ornate fashion pieces and whatever. Now, when you talk about Tin Machine, the man, like even with Let's Dance, he, he kind of hit himself behind. Remember he had the platinum blonde yep. and then with the blue jean video, he was all in dig. He was still hiding. He was still, yep. now from Tin Machine on, you saw David Bowie in a suit and that was it. He was done hiding behind anything and he stood right in front of the music and said this is me and this is the music that he was always for me you know going into developing into my favorite album outside uh the double album outside which is the concept album about a serial killer and i think probably uh for me his most fascinating work so what year was that Outside, I want to say, was 95. Don't hold me to that. Uh, but it had Hollow Space Boy. It had The Heart's Filthy Lesson, gotcha. which was the end song on David Fincher's 7. Wow, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was I right about 95? I think I... I just checking right now but yeah it was around that time frame once again kind of in the, if you yeah if you're not uh a boy fanatic outside was 95 yeah <laughs> okay sure. all right i like, it's funny because i was i'm looking through his uh discography i've never even heard of this one the buddha of suburbia i don't even, <laughs> <laughs> no, even know that one see oh my god chris give, give me give me a minute and a half all right the buddha of suburbia was some british television series ran for a couple years i had no idea of it whatsoever either i don't know how i came across a track from it and then i went into the album it's reminiscent of his work with brian eno there's some very ethereal tracks on there there's a couple of instrumentals on there he actually re-recorded strangers when we meet from that album and put it on outside it's a better version on outside but i will tell you this if you're on a plane and you've got headphones, you've just got some time and you're a busy man and there's nobody in your ear, put on Buddha of Suburbia. I actually use one of the instrumental tracks as the background for my trailer. Put on Buddha of Suburbia and it will blow you away. It is probably his most underrated album. And I say that because nobody knows about it. Nobody right, knows. Right, right. It's absolutely fantastic so let's talk about about, about your movie and and what spurred you, you kind of mentioned what spurred you to make this but what spurred you to make it and what spurred you to make it about this stage of his career 
Well, again, it was always my favorite. Starting with Tin Machine, I felt Tin Machine was grossly criticized, unfairly criticized, and people just didn't get it. They didn't want to see Bowie within the confines of the context of a band. And I kind of get that. But then you go into uh, Black Tie, White Noise, which was the album after Tin Machine 2, and that's where he began, you know, really becoming himself. And it was just always my favorite era. Now, this is how this project started. I talk about Bowie on my show a lot. Uh, on the bone, I'm I'm the Bowie fanatic. <laughs> I'm the I'm the crazy kid that loves Bowie. <laughs> uh, and a lot of people would ask me, "What is it about Bowie that you love so much?" And it came to me that a lot of people, again, don't know after Let's Dance what he did. So I was just going to collect some of my favorite performances that I knew. I had initially the first cut had some movie clips from The Hunger, from Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence in it. Yeah. And it was almost it was basically going to be a fanboy film. Gotcha. And is often with filmmaking and even songs, you being a musician and songwriter as well, you'll know this. You start out somewhere and then the song or the film or the narrative will make itself known and say, I know this is what you were thinking, but what about this? What about going around this corner? So as I started putting it together with my editor, Spike, I said, this can be more. I didn't know if I had the resources and the time to do the research and everything. I initially told Spike, Spike, I'll pay you. It'll be two weeks worth of work. It's going to be an hour. Six months later, an hour and a half, (laughs) an hour 45 is where we ended up. I'd said, okay, this can actually be something that answers. I wanted something in between Moon Age Daydream and the last five years. Mm -hmm. And I said, this could actually be that body of work, something to bridge Moon Age Daydream and the last five years. I scrapped a lot of the things from the beginning and I said, okay, here we go. There were a couple of clips I knew that had to be in there. His reworking of Loving the Alien, which I think he did in 2002 with Jerry Leonard and transformed it into a completely different song. It's such a touching performance that a lot of people haven't seen. That's why I called it Loving the Alien because I wanted to open up with that song. There was another clip of his 50th birthday concert and you're talking to a cat. I right here and right here are two crates, beer and Pepsi crates of LPs. I I have all of his works on. I'm a vinyl cat. <laughs> right, right, right. I have all of his works on vinyl. There's a 50th birthday concert where he had various artists come in and perform different songs throughout his career. And there is a song called uh, Hollow Space Boy, where Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters is on drums, his guy is on drums, and then the original Foo Fighters drummer. It's a three-friggin' drummer song. It's insane, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah you know it. It's, yeah. And I wanted, I wanted to introduce people to those kind of hidden clips and how funny he was. And the fact that he did, he was on stage with Gilmore with Comfortably Numb. He was on stage singing Hurt with Trent Reznor, uh, which leads, there's a clip that I have of him on stage with Arcade Fire. It was one of his last performances. It may have been, you know why he stopped touring, right? I'm not really, because he had the heart attack and then it was his health, right? During the reality tour, he was in Germany and he, had a heart attack on stage. He started to, you can see he's standing and he's singing and he's grabbing his arm. He's grabbing his left arm. Yeah. And there's footage of this on the internet. Somebody in the in the crowd 
And I struggled, Chris. I struggled in telling the story, do I, because it's rare, mm. uh, with adding it to the documentary. But it's so, as a fan, it's so painful to watch. And this is no hyperbole. The two and a half minutes of it, it hurt my heart. It hurt my heart to see this guy having a heart attack on stage. Having a heart attack on stage, yeah. And I said, I said, that's going to kill the documentary. All of the joy in the songs that you hear up to and whatever you see afterwards is going to all be overshadowed by this moment. Now it's real. And, in a, and as a filmmaker, I'm a huge fan of real. I just didn't feel that it needed that. But what I did fit in, I fit in a clip of his one of his final performances might have been his second to last where after he had stopped touring and i think he was on stage possibly four years later with arcade fire and he did a song with them and i had initially had it on the back end of the video because let me tell you this never do a project with somebody that doesn't get it <laughs> in other words my editor spike not a bowie fan he kept the only song he knows my bow is let's dance and he kept going what are we going to put let's dance in what are we gonna put? i go we're not putting let's dance in that's not the point of this <laughs> stop asking me let's dance the thing too like the heart attack was 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 addressed in the five years of uh, last five years documentary. So you see that, right? Absolutely. So I, and I didn't need to research that ground and the clip of him performing with the arcade fire, I think, I think works better. Also the thing with the, that video with the heart attack, it's just kind of personal. It's just kind of like, I, you feel like a voyeur. It was weird to me too, Maurice, not to interrupt you, but it's funny because you see, uh, they, they talk about this tour and it starts with like this triumphant Bowie's tour. I think it was 2000, like you mentioned, it was at the Heathen tour. Yeah. And he's like, you mentioned, he's not wearing any crazy costumes, but he looks cool. And then the heart attack one, he's got like a hoodie on. It's like, I've never seen him looking like a roadie on stage before. And I was like, was yeah. he starting to like, yeah. Not care or was he getting warnings that maybe I just never that I didn't like seeing that clip, obviously, because here's one of our heroes, no pun intended, having a heart attack. But he also didn't look like Bowie. Like Bowie always had a little bit of class. Even when you see in your documentary some of those later performances where he's wearing just a t-shirt and like jeans, it still oh, looks Oh, absolutely. Sweet. He looks he looks great. He looks cool. <laughs> like you could go to, to the club looking like that. Absolutely. The one where he had the heart attack, he looked like he was going to a like a high school football game. And I was just like, I don't I wonder if there was a correlation there either subtly or or you know i don't know just to me it's like that whole thing just feels out of sorts i've often wondered i mean you know this is a guy that clearly had access to all of the doctors in the world did he not know did he did he ignore signs i, I mean listen he he was on stage for the better part of 50 years so i kind of get that but it, it was odd to me that it would creep up on him but True to his nature, you've seen the clip. The, the, he's like two minutes in telling people he's in pain. And then at some point they bring him a stool yeah, yeah. and he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And I don't know, you know, like we all are and it's all our own business. We're all searching for something that people think we have or have already found. And they just don't understand that we may have bits and pieces of it, but we're ultimately not going to stop till we feel we have the completion of it, which sadly may never come, you know? Well, let's talk to you about, about what the stuff you did include. So I thought it was interesting because I didn't know what to expect. Right. Basically, you have done a great job and I say stringing only because in, in amassing, collecting, sewing, 
all of these great performances together to make up this documentary. And there's not really a lot of interviews or talking with Bowie. There's some great bits, but mostly it's just you're swinging from amazing performance and amazing song. Honestly, I, I don't think I've ever heard Space Boy. I'm sure that I have, but watching it with Foo Fighters with three drummers, I was like, what, <laughs> right? what, what is this? This is insane. It's amazing. <laughs> right? So, so how did you get all these clips? And obviously... Bowie's estate is not listening to this, and if they are, give me a call. I'm assuming you're not getting the licenses to use all of this stuff from the Conan O'Brien show, et cetera, et cetera. No, right, right, right. It, it's interesting. I did the research going through everything that's on the internet. I mean, if you're going to do a documentary, there's no other way to do it if you don't have exclusive rights to unaired material or anything, but to do the, the uh, internet. There is something called and you're going to put me on the spot. It's called, because Lionsgate, I showed a friend of mine the trailer, and he's he's a musician. He's he's kind of dialed in with a lot of people, and he goes, I have a friend that works at Lionsgate that would be interested in this. And I said to him, because my intent was, and, and my intent still is, I said, I was putting this together, and I was going to release it on the internet for free, which, which I'll get into that a little later. Just put it up on a site, Vimeo, then just allow people to see for free. So I wasn't concerned necessarily about copyrights or the estate coming after me because this was a labor of love to me. Yeah. I didn't make any money on it. As a matter of fact, I had to pay my editor, so I actually spent money on it. That's all it's ever been. Me saying, I'm a filmmaker, and David Bowie is my biggest inspiration. Why in the hell would I not make a film about it? But it's called fair use. The fair use doctrine will allow you in situations like this to compile because you have to understand everything I got, I got off the internet. Wow. And it's all there without anybody's permission as well. Now I had to do deep dives. In, in other words, it would take you a long time to pull every clip that I got. But the other thing is, Chris, and you mentioned how great the performances are. There are multiple performances of these songs that I put up there. Not all of them, but some. And you have to sit there and you have to look at the performances and you have to go, well, this one's better because of this reason. This one is going to hold people's interest more because ultimately the goal of it is, it's not, it's not for you and I. It's for you and I in the sense that there's a catch-all of some very great performances from David Bowie, and we've got those years explained. Right. But I also wanted to really pull people in that were not fans of David Bowie, or as uh, JP of Roger and JP, uh, who are also on the bone, said, I was a very fringe fan, and you made me a believer. But that's that's how I got around. Now, listen. That's not to say that the Bowie estate is <laughs> not going to come after me, but I would think that they would look at it and go, well, it's all out there anyway. In other words, everything that I have in there, I stitched together into a narrative thread, right. which was really the directing part of it because it's like a friend asked me, well, how are you the director if you didn't shoot any footage? I go, well, what I'm doing is I'm directing traffic. I'm saying, I want this here. I want this here. Here are the transitions that I want. Cut this part out. Elongate this. Freeze frame this. So it's all out there, but I was able to, I think, I hope successfully, and I've watched it a couple of times, and I do think that I was, but it's not for me to say. I think I was successfully able to put interviews in front of songs, put the songs and performances in a certain order that makes it seem like 
this was the trajectory of his life. And he knew that this was how it was going to go. And he said these things for that very purpose, for a document of those albums and that career. So I was going to ask you too, like when you're getting these clips, there's so many times when um, you'll see, you know, this is not a you know a fan documentary or a student documentary, but the clips, will, the quality won't be as good because you're pulling off the internet. But the quality of these right. performances are all very good. Are they all out there at high definition, or how are you able to to do that? Well, we we had to try and bolster some of the definition of some of the videos. But now understand something. Again, part of the process, part of the filmmaking of it, if you will, is going over footage and footage and footage and footage and seeing where the highest definition quality clips were. I'll be honest with you. There are songs that I wanted in here. There are performances that I wanted in here and the quality was just not there. It was either shot by someone in the crowd or it was just like too degraded. And, and that was the, that was the disheartening part, especially when there are a couple of songs that I know would have fit beautifully in there and people would have loved. But that's what it is. But thank you. I appreciate that compliment as far as the quality of the video, because that was a concern of mine. I didn't want someone watching this documentary as a whole and go, well, I could have spent a couple of weeks on YouTube and eventually I would have saw all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And that might be true, but you're certainly not going to have the story aspects of it. You're not going to have the connectivity of it. You're not going to know that Bowie's jump, they say, was written because of his half-brother's suicide. Um, you, you're not going to understand those things. You're not going to have, you know, there were certain things I put in just for the humor of it, like the Ricky Gervais shit. <laughs> Because it's just so, but Bowie, he was, a, he, he could be a little bit of a, he could come off as a little bit snobby, stuck mm -hmm. up, oh, erudite, if you will. And to see him goofing off, it was just like the funniest thing to me. So that's one thing that like, I know this because once again, I'm a Bowie fanatic, disciple, whatever you want to say. Bowie is super funny. Like he's funny. Like he could be in the Beatles in the sixties. He's Lennon McCartney, dry sense of humor, funny. And and if you haven't seen it, so Ricky Gervais, another, I'm a huge fan of all of his stuff. Oh, absolutely. He did, he did a show called Extras. And it's just, you know, typical, he's just a sad sock. Everything he does is a sad sock. <laughs> and he meets Bowie in a club. And of course, he's telling him like, you know, oh, in a show and the six million viewers, like in that classic Ricky Gervais, like putting himself over, but in the most embarrassing of ways. Right. And Bowie won't buy it. Bowie doesn't it. buy it. But then Bowie starts writing a song about the silly little fat man <laughs> who should bl blow his stupid brains out. And he's got the piano and he's like, <laughs> pig face, little loser. Everyone's singing with me yeah. now. Pig yeah. face, little loser. And Gervais is just sitting there just eating it. And even the friend that's with him, the pretty Scotch girl starts laughing. He's like, shut up. <laughs> and Bowie's like, this is so funny. I almost wish like Bowie starred in a rom-com, like yeah. some kind of English, like get rid of Hugh Grant and put Bowie in there. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And now that has nothing to do with the music, but it's an aspect of his life that you otherwise wouldn't get and i wanted i no. desperately wanted to put that in when he's telling the story of when he has brings dave gilmore over That's and goes great. yeah my parents six or seven i was about six or seven and then you and then you look at david gilmore face and he he pauses more and goes six or seven i think not <laughs> yeah he doesn't quite get it at first because bowie's playing so straight basically what happens is another great moment that i i think i'd heard about it but bowie actually performed with not just gilmore with pink floyd pink floyd and right. they 
did comfortably numb with Bowie on vocals. I'm like, I think it was Nick Mason says like he basically changed it into, turned it into a, a Bowie a, song. Yeah, yeah. He turned it into a David Bowie song. This great show of the rehearsal and doing it. And then backstage, he pulls Gilmore and says, you know, I was a Pink Floyd fan when my parents came and took me to see you, I think at the London Marquee when I was six or seven. And it was such a great experience. And he doesn't even like, no smile. Nothing. And Gilmore is listening. And after a second, he's like six or seven. <laughs> Oh, I could have got my, I think you got your age wrong. Yeah, it was 10. It was 10. I think you exaggerated the age a little bit. And the other, and the other great one, and it's, it's such a Martin Short SCTV, but it's all English comedy, Canadian comedy is when he's, I'm assuming it's probably from a, a behind the scenes interview from extras where he's like, oh yeah, I gave Gervais some great material. Like yeah. here's a good one. It was like, you know, you, you and what army? Yeah. Like that was a good one. Huh? Or like, good you know, one, if you, huh? if you. If you keep making that face, it's going to stay that way. Stay that you know, way. it's just really funny. So I, I, matter of fact, I taped, I uh, recorded that David Gilmore and sent it to Rich Ward, the guitar player in Fozzie, because he's a Gilmore fanatic. And I said, oh, you got to okay. see this. It's like the meeting of our two idols and Bowie's just blistering them. Right. That's what I want there. And I wanted all of that in one body of work because I think it's important enough to have him out there and have hit have it out there like that where you don't have to search for yeah where it's still in some context because i kind of do a progression of him aging starting with tin machine and i i didn't go in exact order there's one performance that is on an album that's outside of that era and i don't know if you caught it or not it was the song the performance to absolute beginners but at that performance of absolute beginners in that music hall is so brilliant and that is such a unique song in his canon yeah i just really wanted to have it in there and i justified it by going well the performance of it is within the framework of the years that i'm talking about and then the other one was heroes on the end but this is the thing you can't do a documentary regardless of what the area is i don't think you can't do a documentary about bowie and not have heroes that's like doing a documentary on bruce springsteen and not having born a run in it somewhere <laughs> you know that's his signature song what did you think did you think it was poignant speaking of heroes when him and his daughter were playing the, the little keyboards together i thought that was amazing and once again i don't know where you found that clip um it was so Chris, well i was doing the work <laughs> <laughs> but no i mean you really got some great stuff there and once again this 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 awesome clip of bowie playing playing a toy piano with his little girl i was just like this is really good stuff between that and like some of the humorous stuff like that to me is, is what i really enjoyed thank you beyond just the performances and beyond once again every look bowie has is just different he's got long hair he's got short hair he's short got, hair right <laughs> I, I forgot about the long hair boy which was fairly recent too in his career you know i thought that was the coolest bowie the long where he had to keep sweeping it out of his yeah yeah, yeah that's rock and roll right there brother <laughs> I imagine it would be hard to do a documentary. Well, not hard for me to do a documentary because I've produced a couple documentaries, but to me, it's based on the, it's happening right now. Right. We're getting, you know, interviews with the participants because we don't know where it's going to go. I mean, I did one a couple of years ago called I'm Too Old for This Shit, where a band found out that they had a huge fan base in Germany 30 years after they broke up and they were getting a chance to go to Germany and finally play there. It's a real true story about a band, actually a Tampa band called Siren, but it was happening as it was going and i said either this is going to be a huge bomb or it's going to be one of the greatest feel-good stories that you could do with yours bowie's done his career is done his life is over so you're now constructing this out of footage that already exists correct which to me would seem almost even more difficult 
than doing a, a documentary because you only have so much material to play with. And understanding, again, what is necessary and what is not. Now, I think you'll, you know that there were songs that I didn't play in their entirety. There were performances where I cut in. I knew, like, I, the song Slip Away, which I really love, which is a really plaintive song. There is just a point where if you're trying to draw other people in, give them, give them three minutes of it. I cut that song in half. I came in three minutes in, and, and then other ones I tailed off on the end. So it's about knowing the temperament that the documentary, the piece of work should have. The, the, mm. And so that was difficult. But ultimately, it was just extremely rewarding to me. And that's without me having put it out there yet. And we're going to send it to the festivals and we're going to see what we can do. But ultimately, I just want people, because I'm a part of a couple of David Bowie uh, fan groups on Facebook that have you know, fairly sizable followings. I mean, you know, and they're not doing what Chris Jericho's doing. <laughs> 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 but, but give them time. <laughs> give them time. Uh, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna uh, post up the link for them for a week, and then I'm gonna shut it down, and then we're gonna submit it to the festivals, and uh, I'll see what Lion Gate is wanting to do with it if they can do anything. If they can't, the completion of it. And the project itself, you know, again, I'll repeat it, you know, sometimes the journey is the destination and the journey of it was what was cool. What do you remember where you were when you found out he died? Yeah, because I had just bought in Blackstar. Like I when it so I remember I was in Los Angeles and Blackstar came out and I was like, because remember, people might not remember. They, they, they just dropped it. Like, there is no warning of this album. It's just like a new right. Bowie record. How the hell did nobody know about this? And They then, did that with the next day. The next day came out, and it's like, what? He's got an album? Because he had went underground. Right. And he had all he had his guys, you know, his producer, Tony Visconti, and his magicians that he'd been with for years. They all signed NDAs. And mm -hmm. somehow, you know, nobody noticed Bowie walking into a freaking <laughs> studio for two and a half months every morning right. in New York. But whatever. So I remember reading that. And once again, Maurice, did, he, did the record come out and he died the next day or vice versa? If I'm not mistaken, he died and the record was released the next day. I'm almost certain of that, but you've got something in front of you that can corroborate it. But I would be very surprised if I was wrong. The record came out the day after he died. They, released, they talked about his death in the morning. I remember it was on Good Morning America. And that's when I first learned of it. So it came out January 8th and Bowie died January. No, so no, it came out first. He died oh, on the 10th. Oh, it did. Okay. So, yeah. okay. And, that, and that's what I remember. So, so and this now it, it all makes sense to me. Gotcha. I bought Black Star. I remember I did this show, if anyone's ever seen it, because they talk about it on Twitter all the time, a show called The Thundermans. And it was like a kids' TV show on the Disney Channel, and they called me to do some role as one of the parents. Oh wait, wait, I, yeah, I know. I got a yeah, mullet so I, in it, and I remember <laughs> going to the studio and listening to Black Star and getting into it because once again, it's not—I didn't know what to expect. You know, it, it was—it's weird and it's slow and it's like haunting and it's like, what the hell is this? It's fast, it's slow, and then it was a day later when you find out like that Bowie passed away, and I was like, this is so crazy. I was really tight with Lemmy. Lemmy had his seventieth birthday party at the Whiskey. I think he was diagnosed with cancer two days later and died like a week and a half after that. Like it right, was quick. Right, yeah, he was yeah. like, I'm not playing this shit. I'm taking myself out of the game. We're done. 
And almost like Bowie is like, I'm just going to wait until the record comes out. You know, you hear about that sometimes. Like people wait for a wedding or they wait for the to see their daughter get married or something. Right, right, right. And as soon as that happens, they're gone. They and release I think, it. They release. I really think he was waiting for that and made a couple really haunting videos as the blind prophet, Button Eye. And then he was gone. And it was just like, wow. Like, listen, none of us, you know, we're all here with the same destination of we're someday not going to be. Right. But that's a pretty freaking cool those two examples of bowie and lemmy that's pretty cool way to to go like you know like man yeah well let me you know i mean <laughs> as much as a badass as bowie in his own respect in his own right motorhead they don't get the credit that they they deserve agreed i think you're again and i mentioned this but i think you're absolutely right as well to be able to write your own epitaph to be able to do video yes that show you dying in bed and you expressing these thoughts through this beautifully haunting music. I mean, forget about it. I, I know that I, I was laying on my couch downstairs, like I get up early and I'll go down and I'll turn on the news. And then it came on and I just laid on the couch and I, I just thought about it for a little bit. And then I was, and I was like, okay, well, we are in a bowie-less world now. I did not shed a tear, Chris, until maybe... A week later, my daughter called me and she's, you know, she's in New York. She's doing news up in New York. And she, she's, uh, she's like, in, she was maybe 30 at the time. And she said, I was just remembering how many moments from my childhood involved David Bowie because I watched her during the day because I was doing stand up at night and my, her mother would work. So it was her and I from the time we got up till about 5 PM, you know, and we're in the car and it's Bowie, it's Bowie this, it's Bowie that. And, you know, I would just show her all of this stuff. And when she said, I forgot how many of my moments were attached to had David Bowie attached to it. Then, then I realized that it wasn't just about me, that he had, he was glue between my daughter and myself at very critical time in our life. And that's when I, I, you know, I'm a man, Chris. I ain't, I, I'm not saying I shit. <laughs> I said, I welled up a little bit. I got a little bit misty, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about some of the performances here that you've included. Um, what are some of your favorites? We mentioned Hello Space Boy. That's, that's really powerful. It's, it's very metal. Right. You have a, a great video from Tin Machine Under the God, which they played the shit out of that. I grew up in, in, in Winnipeg in Canada. Canada because Bowie was very popular in Winnipeg as he was everywhere but I remember Tin Machine I hadn't heard that song in a while I was like man I gotta go back and revisit that but what are some of your favorite uh, performances that you included in this Tin Machine absolutely Hello Space Boy with the Foo Fighters I mean that's you know there's just there's just no denying the power of that yeah but I'll be honest with you one of my favorite songs is Jump They Say. That's one of my favorite clips. And the only reason, Chris, I didn't do a live performance of that is because I think the subtleties and the nuances in the music, the horn playing, the, the female voices that are coming in the background when he says, got to believe in somebody. I think it's one of his best. It's one of my favorite clips. But if we go live, you know, again, I'm going to say to you, that I really love the opening track, Loving the Alien. And if I had directed Moon Age Daydream, that's how I would have closed that film. Mm. Because it's so eerie. The phrasing is such a great metaphor for his life and the people that loved him or that were trying to understand why they should love him. 
I just think it's one of the the more powerful performances. But I got to be honest with you. I mean, how do you not love Little Wonder, which is a fantastic song? Um, how do you not love Dead Man Walking? But if if yet by top three performances, I would say Loving the Alien, uh, Hollow Space Boy with the Foo Fighters. Uh, since it wasn't a performance. I might have to go with apps. Oh man, never get old. I forgot. Yeah. He's ah! <laughs> never get old. All right. And to be honest with you, we start with the video of Thursday's Child, but then we transition into the live version of it, which has always been a favorite song. Okay, never get old, loving the alien and hollow space. <laughs> <laughs> so many choices, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about never get old. Well, like you said, little little wonder comes across great i th- i loved earthling on conan as well you know and yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely it just as far as a performance goes and reeves gabrell on the guitar and him early on the voyeur of utter destruction is beauty damn who directed this documentary <laughs> <laughs> he did a really good job chris So, Maurice, as we start to wind down here, what are your plans for the documentary and what would you like to see happen with it? Because obviously it's a labor of love. You're so excited to be doing it. And, and, Absolutely. and us Bowie fanatics, like I just loved watching. I'm going to watch. I had to kind of rush through it to get it done by the time you and I talk, but I'm going to watch it again so I can really, because even the end credits, there's a, a hero's performance from Glastonbury. A- absolutely, which is fantastic. And please, yeah, after the credits, there is a performance that I couldn't fit in of them playing This Is Not a Miracle, which he oh. says he never plays. Did you already see? Did you did you get to that? I saw that at the end, but then I had to, but I, I know they played. What year was that? 2000? Oh, that was about 2000, right. Jeez. Of course, from that 1984 film with Sean Penn and Timothy Hutton. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Falcon at the Snowman. Remember that? The true yep. life story about the kids that uh, turned into spies yep. for, for Russia? Yeah. And I couldn't fit it in because it wasn't in the framework of the time, but it's such a fascinating performance that I wanted it somewhere to die. So it's kind of like an album's hidden track, you know? Yeah, <laughs> of course. And so my end goal is, uh, but before I do that, because I don't want you to come up before I get to say this about, about Fozzie, because I wanted to, obviously we're going to be talking about music and, you know, I want to give you the respect of, you know, knowing about your, your music. Obviously I knew you were in Fozzie. I had not done a deep dive on it. I didn't, I'm not telling you I did a deep dive. Mm-hmm. I did what I felt was a somewhat comprehensive overview of the work, which, and hey, first and foremost, you guys are fantastic. Fantastic. Now going beyond the first two records where they were covers, what I found, this is what I took from Fozzie. You guys, do the hard brilliantly. You have that there, but what you'll find in a heavy metal, a hard rock band is that their chops are put on display more when they slow down. Yes. So if you go chasing the grail, I'm going to take broken soul, which I think you guys know that was a fantastic song because you, you, I think it was like the third, second or third single from that album, go sin and bones, a past life is phenomenal wow thanks uh, man but one of my favorite from uh do you want to start a war and by the way reading up when a lot of people were saying sins and bones was the record for me do you want to start a war <laughs> that's the one not only with do you want to start a war but with bad tattoo which is a, which is a fantastic metaphor for a relationship that you can't get the stink <laughs> of uh, off of but scarecrow dude scarecrow 
You guys, when you slow down, and I don't know if you know Stephen Wilson and a band called Porcupine Tree. Yeah. It's really on the past life. You guys get that ethereal ambient, those, those kind of textures in there and your voice. And when you bring that voice down, it reminded me of Porcupine Tree, which is one of my favorite bands. Interesting. Uh, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. And I just thought that was where I said, okay, obviously I can appreciate the crunch. But if you're able to slow down and make me appreciate going through a certain journey with you that may not necessarily attack me and I have to sit there and I have to listen, I think you guys are legit. Uh, same, by the way, you know. Man, that's you know, forget about it. <laughs> that's <laughs> well, boombox. That's boombox, right? That's boombox. Okay, yeah, that's boombox. okay, yeah. You, I mean, you're legit, dude. And I just, I wanted to be able to tell you that because the thing is, you go, all right, he's wrestling, he's gonna try and rock, and then you listen to the, you, you feel like you're gonna listen to the music, and be like, okay, it's like when a band goes away for a long time, and then they come back, and you're like, and you're gonna interview them, and you're like, uh, uh. But then, I, like, I was pleasantly surprised with Extreme, who after 15 years came back. Back mm -hmm. with rise up which is you know wow i was like oh this guy is legit well once again that comes from the bowie attitude of you always want to evolve you know what i mean and, and always change things up why did you not start out as a singer obviously you have got a voice you've got a songwriting skill then no, no, I've, I've been playing in bands since i was 13 years old i wanted to be in a rock band and i wanted to be a wrestler and they both kind of happened at different times so. okay okay fair enough fair enough but once again yeah so but but going back to, to loving the alien well another question before that and i know i'm interviewing you did you ever think of being a rocker and smashing people over the head in the ring no because that that's <laughs> cheesy that's cheesy that that you, you, yeah. can't, you don't mix the two because then people don't take one seriously one, or the they, other they you take know either one seriously i got yeah it. exactly you don't want to make a mockery of it because everyone always used to say are you body slam guys on stage? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I do. Our stage set is a giant ring, and I take bumps in the ring while I'm singing because that's legit. You know, yeah, put their head through a Marshall stack. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll leave that up to Manowar. You're you're smart. You're smart, man. Go ahead. What did you want to say? Let's finish up with loving the alien, though, man. Once again, uh, it's a great piece of work. Obviously, you put a lot of time and, and, and effort into it. I mean, how long did it take for you to make this? By the way. Half a year. And now when I say half a year, that's over the course of, you know, sometimes we would only be able to sit down for a week or so. But again, it was constantly evolving. My wife, right. I told my wife no less than four times it was done. And we kind of got into an argument because I had, I was like, oh, there's this cut that I really think I need to make. And, you know, it's taking up time from me and the baby and giving her free time. And she's like, I thought you said it was done. And, and I had to say to her, I go, I have to be honest with you. I've never been in a relationship where I've had to justify creating. Right, right, right. I think of something that I create and I, and I just kind of want to be left alone until I'm done. I go, the project's done when the project's done. And you and you know you know now you can over tinker with it. At some point you have to let it go. But every change that I went back and made only made the project better. So I knew that my instincts were correct. So yeah, about six a half a year plus the time thinking about it, plus the time you know gestating on it, and and we'll we'll see what happens. Like I say, I want to submit it to festivals. I'm gonna let people see it for a week. And then, then I'm going to shut it down and then we'll see what happens with the festivals. Last two questions for you. What's your favorite uh, scene or part of the documentary? I would have to say it's him playing the little tiny keyboard with his daughter. If it's not him playing the little tiny keyboard with his daughter, again, 
I got I go back to that first performance of Love and the Alien that I yeah. think is so beautifully reworked and so sad. I would say one of those two. Aside from the humorous parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love the Gilmore part, but I, I think like yeah. my favorite performance we mentioned a few times, but you guys gotta check it out is Hollow Space Boy, yes. which is from his 50th anniversary at Madison Square Garden, which I'm sure there's a whole many videos of that on YouTube, which I'm gonna check out. But just the fact he had three drummers on stage. Oh, I mean that's got such a <laughs> chance of being a total train wreck, but those guys came in and it was great. Right. And and believe it or not, the 50th anniversary concert, there's not a lot of footage out there with that. I have it on a double album, but I think it was kind of bootleg. Oh, wow. I don't you know. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> but That's yeah, great, yeah, man. Yeah. Last question. What's your favorite Bowie song or album of all time? Again, I'm going to go with Outside. Uh, which is from 95, which is the double LP. I apologize about Mr. Paws, uh, which is a complex album about a serial killer. There's a song on there called I'm Deranged, which is just phenomenal. And if you have not heard it, and there's no footage that was good enough for me to use to put that song in there. David Lynch used it for his Lost Highway film. And you know, David Lynch, is he's like crazy. So if yeah. it's, good, it's good. I'm deranged. I, I, I compel you to go ahead and look at that. That would be one of them. I just think the beauty of Absolute Beginners is fantastic as well, too. So I would say those. But my favorite album is Outside, Black Tie, White Noise, is in there as well. And if you learned anything from me, if you're taking anything away from this, buy a copy of Buddha of Suburbia. And when you've got 45 minutes, because it, it flows like that, be, with the, when you've got 45, 40 minutes, it's probably 40 minutes, put the headphones on and don't let anybody in, interrupt you. And you're going to be so upset with yourself that you wasted so many years without not knowing, not knowing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I, I feel that way about Hollow Space Boy, man. I got to tell you that. Yeah. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, well, uh, Outside is an album that you need. That I, Brian, That's when he got back with Brian Eno. And I, you're a musician. Yeah. You know how important Brian Eno is and how uh, revolutionary he is. I would say Boot of Suburbia and Outside are two albums that you need to listen to front to back. And you'd be surprised. There's so much more than Hollow Space Boy on Outside. But Hollow Space Boy is the fucking highlight. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, I know you got to get on the air. And uh, great meeting you, even though you're just only about 20 minutes from me right now. But uh, great piece of work. Congratulations, man. And uh, Thank you. hopefully I'll get a chance to do your show face-to-face -face one of these days. I, I would love to. Uh, you, you'll be around. And listen, I, I, I was told by uh, your assistant that you're about to do some touring and this and that. I appreciate you taking the time to squeeze me in. I really do. I really do, Chris. I look forward to meeting you in person. And thank you for this. Absolutely. Thanks, Maurice. Appreciate it, man. Thank you, brother.